Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire, one chapter. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brent Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Port Quentin. And welcome to our 15th episode of the Not A Cast, entitled, You Weren't Supposed To Be Here, analysis of a Game of Thrones Catelyn 3, in which Lady Catelyn breaks down and then gets back up on her feet. And somewhere in there, someone else tries to kill Bran. Man, that kid doesn't get a break. And gets his neck eaten for his trouble by a wolf. This episode is brought to you by our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., and Hayden J. Thank you, gentlemen, very, very much. Thank you very much indeed. Absolutely. And as we say in all of our podcasts, our spoiler warning. So we'll have spoilers for all the published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, and the Winds of Winter sample chapters as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. So this, as we're recording this episode, it's been a pretty eventful week in the Song of Ice and Fire world. Uh, we've had some announcements from George R. R. Martin about upcoming works in the Song of Ice and Fire world. We've also had some convention appearances by one of the hosts of this podcast. And uh, we are going to be talking about a few other things as well. So uh, the thing you've got probably have all been waiting for, uh, have, it is finally here. And that is Fire and Blood Volume 1 is finally going to be coming out. And George has released an announcement for that. And the U.S. publication date for that is going to be November 20th, 2018 with... Uh, some of the publications in other countries besides the United States aligned, but others will not be aligned because there's a bit of translation work that goes into it. Um, and that other book that we're probably not as interested in, that is The Winds of Winter, will not be coming out in 2018. So, uh, you know, that's okay, right? I mean, we're, we're all really looking forward to Fire and Blood Volume 1. I, I know Aziz, who was on last week, is really looking forward to it, of course. Absolutely. There's going to be some fascinating history, some great stories in there, no doubt. And who needs an addition to the main series? That's just I haven't exactly. even thought about Winds of Winter. For days at a time since the dance. So, uh, no, I'm definitely anticipating Fire and Blood. It's my mom texted me as soon as the announcement, wondering, oh, remember me what Fire and Blood is again? Which I feel like is a pretty representative reaction. Uh, but you know, it's there's a, there's a grim, sublime awesomeness to the era in which there were dragon wings over Westeros. So that's, that's going to be thrilling in and of itself. Uh, Winds of Winter, honestly, I, I really. Was not expecting it to come out this year. Uh, holiday season of 2019, end of the decade, is, is my hope at this point. Uh, that's I think that's a fair hope. I, th I think my hope is for the Winds of Winter is for it to come out around the time that season eight of Game of Thrones either releases or ends. Sure. Uh, I would imagine that both would be um, ideal spots for George to release the books. I'm fairly positive his... Um, his publishers really wanted to come out around that time so they can maximize on their profits that they, they want to get for, for the book so far. Um, but yeah, fire and blood is, you know, it's, it's fire and blood volume one. I mean, if you like the world of ice and fire and I, I like the world of ice and fire, I think you'll really like fire and blood volume one. Um, we talked about this in a prior podcast. I don't remember which episode it was, but uh, fire and blood volume one will be, the history of the Targaryen kings from Aegon the first until Aegon the third. So talking about a roughly 150 year period, it might go back a little bit farther if, you know, George has chapters about Valyria or the Targaryens on Dragonstone. So uh, yeah, it, it should be interesting. Um, I, I can't say that I'm, I'm super thrilled about it, but I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'll like it. I'll, I'll be purchasing it, of course. 
I will certainly contribute to its high profit margins. But yeah, I agree. <laughs> uh, everyone involved who is a financial stake wants Martin to get Winds of Winter out in a way that it can coexist uh, comfortably and profitably with season eight of Game of Thrones. Sure. I mean, ideally, it would have been the Winds of Winter came out three years ago and a dream of spring would coincide with the final season. <laughs> but that's not the situation in which we find ourselves. So. It's not. I mean, it's, it remains an open question as to exactly how much financial pressure can and will be brought to bear on, on George R. R. Martin and how much, how independent he is of that and how well he deals with it. But I got to imagine, imagine if there is such a thing as crunch time with him, uh, it's starting to come now. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing, right? I, I think we, you can say that you're disappointed that the Winds of Winter is not out yet. Uh, I know that George, I, I've got the feeling that George is disappointed that the book didn't come out before season six of Game of Thrones because it spoiled the thing that he think that I believe that he thought was the biggest cliffhanger from A Dance of Dragons, and that is the fate of Jon Snow, which of course is one of the seminal, if not the seminal event of the book itself. Um, of course, every fan and their mother knew that Jon was coming back in The Winds of Winter, but I think he felt that it was a um, not getting it out before that was a it was a big letdown to his fans, and so I, I sympathize with him. Um, I do feel like that Fire and Blood is being released as kind of a stopgap measure by his publishers because they're like, well, we're not going to get the Winds of Winter out right now. We need something because there hasn't been a Song of Ice and Fire book since 2014 with the publication of The World of Ice and Fire. Um, I, I guess you could say that The Sons of the Dragon was a novella that came out in 2017, but it was just a chapter from Fire and Blood Volume 1. So my feeling is that the publishers are like, hey, George, just give us something that we can we can release and we'll get to the Winds of Winter when we can get to it. But, you know, preferably before or right after season eight would be great as far as we're concerned. I agree. They needed an event and they got one. So I'll enjoy it, even if I'll be somewhat melancholic that it's not what I really want. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, for as we progress into that, so in the November timeframe is – about seven months from where we are right now is when the book will be published. Uh, we'll, we'll probably have some additional coverage beyond our chapter by chapter coverage of the um, uh, of that book, and we'll dive into it and talk about some of the things that'll be interesting in that. But that does bring us to the uh, the announcement of our next Patreon special episode, which is uh, we're proud to announce is going to be all about. Why the Winds of Winter is taking so goddamn long to come out? Um, I, I, I sure that's a, that's a question that not many people ask. I feel like that's it's a question <laughs> in the fandom that no one's really that concerned about. But you know, we're into that kind of meta, nitty gritty, little teeny tiny topic things when we do our special Patreon episodes. So yeah, so look forward to that coming here towards the end of May. If nothing else, we are known for our originality. So. Right, exactly. We we do original podcasts. Uh, of course, no one has ever done a chapter by chapter podcast before, and no one has ever asked the question of when the Winds of Winter will come out and what is taking George R. R. Martin so long to write and publish the Winds of Winter. Of course, we are just the Lewis and Clark of a song of ice and fire topics, my friend. <laughs> Blazing those trails. We really, really, really are. So we'll have more dates for you guys in the coming weeks about when that's going to come out. But uh, since we last spoke, if you guys listened to our episode on Tyrion 2, we had Aziz on, and both Aziz and Emmett both went to Ice and Firecon. So Emmett, tell me and our audience about what happened at Ice and Firecon and why everyone should be going to that, con uh, to that convention next year. 
Well, Jeff, if you can remember what happened at Ice and Fire Con, it must have not have been a very a very good con. <laughs> like a Dothraki wedding, it has to have a few deaths or it's deemed an especially dull affair. But no, it was a great weekend. Uh, Ice and Fire Con, if you're not familiar, is a convention uh, uh, based around the celebrating the books and having uh, panels and, and vendors and events uh, built around the th- uh, themes and events of the books. It's, uh, it was held at Deer Creek Lodge this year, a little bit southwest of Columbus, Ohio. And it's, it's terrific. It's about 250 or so people, which was a, a huge and profitable increase from last year, uh, thanks in large part to the really tireless work of the people in the fandom who run it. But oh, it's yeah. still just, for me, a great intimate size for a con. It's not overwhelming. It's not hugely corporatized. You know, the, the money you're spending is on uh, giving back to the people who run the con and to the uh, individual vendors who bring their stuff there. So you can, I think, feel really good about that as part of the community. And it's a blast. I was on some interesting panels, one uh, talking about Dorne and its role in the books and how that worked out on the show. Not so much is the answer to that. Uh, I was on a great panel with uh, Silas Toms. You might know him from uh, Twitter. On uh, Lovecraft and the relationship to A Song of Ice and Fire. I saw people like Aziz uh, do a bunch of other great panels. I saw Scad from uh, Davos' Fingers deliver this really soulful rendition of the famous Broken Man speech from A Feast for Crows. That was probably the overall highlight of the weekend. Um, and I saw a bunch of nerds hit each other with foam sticks. So what, what better weekend could I possibly have? I highly recommend Ice and Fire Con for next year. Yeah, I, I, I went last year and it was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, it's, it's definitely a great place to hang out with fellow Ice and Fire nerds or not nerds because, again, I'm, I'm not a nerd. I, I know that Emmett's not a nerd either. <laughs> Naturally, we're, we're, we're the prom king and queen. Everyone can debate which is which. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, but yeah, if I, I don't know when tickets will go on sale for the 2019 version of it, but I do recommend that folks at least check it out, see what it's all about. And uh, yeah, it's really one of the great things about the Song of Ice and Fire uh, community is the actual community aspect, which is something we've talked about in the past. And that is something that's really cool about this convention is meeting people that have kind of the same basis of knowledge that you have, but also the same kind of passion and excitement that they have for the series and for George's work and for the TV show to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, I, I was on a convention last year where uh, I was on a uh, panel with uh, Aziz and Tara, the founder of Ice and one of the co-founders of Ice and Fire Con, who about the show versus the books. And you never know what's going to be the next uh, panel and things like that that'll come up and we'll have to see what, uh, what next year brings. But yeah, definitely check them out. Speaking of the Ice and Fire community, very excited to say that there's a new podcast coming on the horizon from uh, Chloe, aka Lies and Arbor on Twitter and Eliana, a.k.a. Arithmetric, on Twitter, and Glass Table Girl on Reddit. They got a podcast coming called Girls Gone Canon on the subject of A Song of Ice and Fire. And they're also doing chapter-by-chapter reads, but not strictly chronologically through the book. They're doing it more uh, character-based, focusing on one character's POV chapters at a time. They're starting up with Ned. They're going to be looking at Ned Stark's chapters in Game of Thrones. And their uh, first episode of that on Eddard 1 in Game of Thrones, a chapter we have already covered, is going to be out on uh, May the 2nd. So Chloe and Eliana are two of the uh, smartest and funniest people in the fandom. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what they have to say. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've listened to an advanced copy of their episode. Uh, by the time this episode releases, their, their episode will be out. And it's, uh, it's really, really good. Uh, the, Jeff, the depth you're, they, you're giving sorry, the magic ahead. away. Everything behind oh, the scenes. <laughs> we got to be mysterious. I have to be more <laughs> mysterious going forward. <laughs> Got to gotta ramp up the opacity there, my friend. I really should. I, I've, I've got to be more uh, ambiguous about these things and just kind of subtly and ambiguously pl- plug 
our, our friends and and Song of Ice and Fire family. Uh, but yeah, the episode is, is excellent. It's it's very in depth, and uh, they go super in depth in R plus L equals J. Um, I really like their discussion about it, about whether it's a twist or something that's been integrated into the novels that's going to be more of a twist for the characters in universe as opposed to us as the fans. Um, that's uh, you. I think you guys will really enjoy that discussion. So definitely check them out. Um, one final thing, and this is probably be a little bit of, of a sadder thing for you guys. Uh, un- unfortunately, we do have to take a, a three week break from the from podcasting, and the reason why is it's it's not Emmett's fault; it's actually all of my fault. And the the reason is that I have a work commitment that's going to be taking me away from uh, this, this microphone that you're hearing right here. Uh, unfortunately, I will not be able to uh, do podcasting for uh, for most of May, but we will be picking back up with our next episode um, that'll be coming your way on. May the 28th and then we'll be doing in that same week we'll be have the special Patreon uh, Patreon only episode as well uh, so I apologize for that in advance but it is something unfortunately I have to do but we will be back so we're not disappearing we're not going anywhere we're just going to take a little bit of a break and this will let Emmett release his, his next Theon essay which I am extremely excited about reading when I get back from that work trip for sure Thank you, buddy. And if you want to relieve Jeff of the uh, burden of a day job, go to patreon.com forward slash not a cast But true, yes. we'll, we'll need the break to build up both ourselves and our audience for the following chapter, which is Sansa 1, our yeah, introduction right. to Jeff's favorite POV character of them all. So <laughs> yes, we need, yes, we need to properly uh, lay the anticipatory groundwork for that undoubted monolith of an episode. Yes, I have to prepare my mind for the entering into entering into the Sansa, uh, so to speak. So that sounds. Weird. <laughs> I didn't mean it's like yeah. I mean it like that. I didn't mean it like that. Of course, no. I, I know what you meant. It's like you're entering into a cult. You got to pass through. It's like mm-hmm. when Danny has to like do all the weird arcane traditions to get hurt in Karth. She has to like send a persimmon or whatever it is, and like right. get certain slippers and sandals and open a certain hall. You got to do that <laughs> for the cult of Sansa Stark. Yeah, and you, or like Danny. With the Dothraki, you have to like eat the heart of the uh, the horse and stuff like that. It's basically <laughs> exactly. Note to, to self: make Jeff eat a heart, <laughs> which apparently was all was made of gummy gummy worms or gummy bears in the TV show. Amelia Clark had to eat a whole heart that was made of gummy bears or, or gummy. Well, worms that sounds delicious. I want to eat a heart of gummy bears and become a messiah. But it being like five pounds of gummy bears, though. I mean, the child in me is like the more the better, but the adult in me is like, yeah, that doesn't sound like a fun weekend <laughs> at all. <laughs> That sure. sounds like that sounds like several dentist trips waiting to happen, and a stomach ache on top of that, and a stomach ache on top of that. Yeah, Emin had briefly mentioned our, our Patreon. If you guys want to check it out, it's patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOF. Uh, we do have uh, questions. We will be picking back up on them on our next episode, but because we had a number of announcements this episode, we figured we would skip over them for right now. Uh, we did get one question, Travis M. Sir Travis M. Uh, I see you. Uh, we will get cover that question in our next episode on the Sansa chapters. So thank you guys for your forbearance. And again, we will uh, see you guys in, in three weeks, but of course we have this episode to, to get to. Uh, so we're not, we're not going away quite yet. So um, this episode is, is about, is one of my favorite chapters in the Song of Ice and Fire. I'll, I'll say that up front. It is on a Game of Thrones, Catelyn three. It is an excellent chapter. And here is the summary and synopsis which are not, which is not short again, because these summaries and synopses are never, ever, ever short these days. So this is a Game of Thrones, Catelyn three. It's been eight days since everyone has departed Winterfell. Left behind are Bran the Broken, Rob, Rickon, 
Maester Lewin, and our POV character for this chapter, Catelyn Stark. Lady Catelyn still hasn't left Bran's side. She didn't even venture outside of Bran's sick room to wish her lord husband goodbye, but she watched them go from the window of Bran's room. Maester Lewin arrives in her room and tells her that, that they need to go over the costs of King Robert's visit, as well as make appointments for the vacancies created by the departure of most of the Stark retinue. When Lewin brings up one of the vacancies, the Master of Horse, Catelyn angrily replies, I would gladly butcher every horse in Winterfell with my own hands if it would open Bran's eyes. Do you understand that? Do you? Well, not really. And then Rob appears and tells Lewin that he'll make the appointments on the morrow. Lewin departs and Rob speaks with Catelyn, asking her what she's doing. I am taking care of your brother. I am taking care of Bran, Cat replies. But is she? That's the question that Rob asks, but Catelyn is unmoved, at least for the moment. She fears that if she leaves Bran, that he'll die. But Rob tells her that Bran is not going to die, that the greatest danger has passed. Irony alert. And then the wolves start to howl. Rob goes to the window and opens it to let Bran hear the howls of the wolves. If you remember from that John chapter, um, it said, or that Tyrion chapter rather, it said that the wolves give Bran some sort of strength, some sort of supernatural strength. But Catelyn begins shaking and screaming, make them stop, make them stop. I can't stand it. Make them stop, make them stop. Kill them all if you must, just make them stop. An instant later, Catelyn finds herself being picked up from the floor by Rob, not remembering that she fell. Rob tells his mother to get sleep and that he'll close the window to the house if she promises that she will actually get sleep. And then all the dogs of Winterfell start to bark. Rob looks back at the window and sees fire. The library is on fire. Rob rushes out of the room to help combat the flames, leaving Cat and Bran alone in the room. When Cat judges that the fire won't reach Bran's sick room, she closes the shutters to the window, turns, and there's a man in the room. You weren't supposed to be here. No one was supposed to be here, the stranger mutters. Catelyn looks him over, small, dirty, in filthy brown clothing and stinking of horses. But worst of all, he has a knife in his hand. No, Catelyn gasps. It's a mercy, the man says. He's already dead. She spins around and tries to call for help, but the man rushes her and catches her, placing his hand over her mouth and pulling her hair back while the other hand brings the knife to her throat. Catelyn reaches up, grabbing the sharp blade with both her hands. She fights, biting his palm and pushing him and the knife away from her throat. You weren't supposed to be here, the man repeats stupidly. And then a shadow appears. Bran's direwolf jumps the man and rips out his throat. Thank you, Catelyn whispers. The direwolf jumps onto Bran's bed and then lays down next to the boy, and Catelyn begins laughing hysterically. That was the same state that Rob and half the Winterfell guard found Catelyn in when they burst in a few minutes later. They bundle Catelyn up in blankets and take her to the Great Keep, where old Nan bathes her while Lewin dresses her wounds in her hands. She falls asleep. When she wakes, she is told she's been sleeping for four days. She requests food. Rob, Theon, Roderick, Hollis Mullen, and Lewin arrive at Catelyn's room. She asks about the cat's ball. No one knew him, but he had been seen about, Hollis tells Catelyn. He had been sleeping in the stables due to his smell and the bag of 90 silver stags found in the stable. And why did he come? Catelyn tells Rob to ask the question himself and come up with the answer. Someone is afraid that Bran might wake up, afraid of what he might say or do, afraid of something he knows. They then discuss the dagger. The blade is Valyrian steel, the hilt dragonbone. A weapon like that has no business being in the hands of such a dude as the cat's ball. Someone gave the dagger to him. Catelyn then asks for the door to be closed and asks for oaths of silence from the men in the room. They all swear it. And then Catelyn reveals what she knows from Lysa about John Aaron being murdered by the Lannisters and how Jamie did not join Robert's hunt the day that Bran fell. I do not think that Bran fell. I think he was thrown. Everyone is shocked. Rob is so shocked that he draws his sword and waves it around, declaring that he will kill Jamie Lannister himself. 
Sir Roderick tells Rob to put the blade away and to never draw your sword unless you mean to use it. Abashed, Rob puts his sword away, and the discussion shifts to proving the allegations that Catelyn raises. Someone must go to King's Landing, but not Rob. There must always be a Stark at Winterfell. Lewin? Roderick? Theon? Eh, not them either. And then it dawns on her. Catelyn will go herself. But what about Bran? I have done everything I can for Bran. His life is in the hands of the gods and Maester Lewin. Finally, they all talk about who will accompany Catelyn and how they'll get down to King's Landing. A host of guards would bring in one attention, but what about Roderick accompanying Cat? That could work. And the route? They couldn't take the King's Road. They'd take ship from White Harbor down to King's Landing, and then they would see what they would see. And that's a Game of Thrones Catelyn 3, a damn good chapter if I do say so myself. And a damn good summary if I do say so myself, sir. Thanks. I agree. It's a absolutely terrific chapter. It's a part of why I consider Catelyn to be one of the best POVs in this first book, up there with uh, da- Danny and Sansa. And it, it works so well because it, it ramps up the was emotionally under the surface in her previous two chapters. Those chapters were very kind of ominous and eerie and hinting at a lot of the doom that was to come. But now Catelyn starts feeling like it's really come home and she's really starting yep. to reckon with what's being done to her family. And it's it's really powerful. Catelyn III is, is George R. R. Martin's portrait of a mental breakdown. Uh, Eddard's chapters are consumed with keeping the memory of past traumas at bay. Uh, Daenerys mm-hmm. has tra- traded one captor for another, even as she's starting to feel some hints of liberation stirring within. Arya and Jon and Tyrion are just struggling to, to digest their daily diets of dehumanization from everyone around them. But what this chapter is about is the world falling apart around someone for whom the world was, for the most part, working. As we yeah. said about Catelyn before, she's a woman of her time and place. Uh, she understands the structures of the world around her in terms of what they're supposed to do and how she's supposed to fit into them. And so that there's a the pathos of the underdog that you see in so many characters of A Song of Ice and Fire is not really present in Catalan's POV. But what is present is this this horrors that kind of the scales fall from her eyes and everything she believed in dissolves. Catalan Tully Stark's story is an accumulation of descents that form one great Greek tragic fall that the climax is, of course, at the Red Wedding. But it begins in this first book. It began with the, the dark wings and dark words that told of John Aaron's death in her first POV chapter. It continued with the portentous letter from Lysa in her second, and now mm-hmm. in her third at the potential deathbed of her beloved boy Bran, she feels as though the bottom has just been completely... She feels as though the bottom has completely fallen out. Oh, Tonally, yeah. and yep, it's just emotionally brutal. Tonally and thematically, it's the follow-up to Bran's literal and metaphorical fall in Bran 2. Uh, you can see, you know, Bran's innocence and warmth that we talked about in that, in that chapter has been replaced by this kind of bitterness and world weariness that we see in Catelyn's POV by his bedside. And throughout these first three books, it's it's really through Catelyn's eyes more than any other that we see the fall of House Stark as this one continuous arc in her oh, first yeah. three books. And this, yeah. is, this is definitely not to suggest that she's a wholly sympathetic perspective in this chapter. <laughs> Martin is definitely unflinching in presenting how difficult it is to be around someone who's this deep in grief and existential doubt. Especially when, as uh, with Maester Lewin, as you noted, they're just trying to kind of nudge them back into the workaday world and get them back on their feet. Uh, it's not easy or fun to try to do that. It's not easy or fun to occupy her headspace in this chapter. But it's it's unpleasantness, not just for the sake of unpleasantness. There's a narrative payoff there. Catelyn gets shocked out of it, as you noted, by the heart-pounding attempt on Bran's life. And afterwards, she returns to Tully words of family, duty, and honor with renewed mm-hmm. purpose. I think her, her strength comes through all the more powerfully on the page when it's paired with that kind of vulnerability. And for the sorrows that 
you know, continue to rack House Stark over the next three books for them to have emotional weight. Uh, you know, it, it has to hit home with us, the feeling that they're having of, of being destroyed. It's not something that can be behind glass. We really have to feel it. And I think that's what makes this chapter work so well. Yeah, it's it's really kind of you feel that that sense that Martin is kind of thumbing the scale of, of stark sorrow. So you like are really feeling the emotional weight that Catelyn is feeling because the chapter opens with Catelyn being in Bran's room and has been there for a long time. It, it's been eight days since Ned left Winterfell. It, it had to have been a week, maybe a little bit more that they were still in and around Winterfell. You know, we pick up from Bran's fall and Tyrion's chapter, and it's been a few days at that point, and they still haven't left the castle of Winterfell itself. But they're on their way. They're about to leave. And that's one of the things that Tyrion talks about is that, you know, Robert will eventually be like, look, Ned, we got to get going. You, we, we've got to go. I'm sorry. I wish we could we could stick around. But we have affairs of the state to attend to or not attend to in the case of Robert. Um so that's that's something that's that you really kind of get the sense of that it's been several weeks that Catelyn has not left Bran's side and she has not she's not sleeping she's barely eating she's just an emotional wreck and she's and it's very realistic the way that she's an emotional wreck because she's not people in real life don't just pick up from tragedy and pick up to the way that they were before they came before the tragedy itself so she has to go through this long emotional really debilitating and per- paralyzing period in her life after Bran's fall, because, you know, Bran is her favorite. She calls him like an innocent child. Uh, it's clear that she has a lot of affection for the boy. Um, but what's really um, sad about this chapter is that, you know, that, that, that line where I have done everything I can for Bran, his life is in the hands of the gods and Maester Lewin. This chapter is the last chapter that Catelyn Stark will ever be in Winterfell, the last time that she will ever see Bran Stark. Because after here, she goes down to King's Landing, then she goes to the end, uh, the, cro- the end of the crossroads, she encounters Tyrion, she goes to the Vale, from the Vale she goes to the Riverlands and meets up with Rob, actually not the Riverlands, she goes to Moat Kaelin, meets up with Rob at Moat Kaelin, and then down to the Riverlands, and she never returns to Winterfell. This is the last time she's, she's, she sees her beloved son. And that's kind of sad in retrospect and going through this this reread that you realize that we're only four, 15 chapters into a song of, or 15 chapters into a song, into a Game of Thrones. And that's it, that she's never coming back to Winterfell. She's never going to see her son again. And, you know, in A Clash of Kings, she comes to believe that her son is dead and she never is dissuaded from that notion, at least so far in the narrative. There might be an opportunity for her in the in the vase of Stoneheart where she will see Bran again in the future, maybe. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily put a lot of stake into that idea, but it's a possibility for sure. But yeah, she's never going to see her boy again. And that's, it, it's sad, it's sorrowful. It, it plays really well with the uh, the motif here of the uh, the sorrow. Um, but again, like that at the same time, like she's sorrowful, and then again, Martin presses his thumb on the scale, and a, another attempt is made on Bran's life yet again. So it's the second time that someone has tried to kill Brandon Stark, and yeah, it's a it's a very tense scene where the cat's ball comes to her and she grabs the bare knife with her hands and holds it back from uh, slitting her throat, and then she tries to save her son, and she succeeds, and, and at least succeeds in delaying the cat's ball until. Uh, the assassin uh, until the assassin until the direwolf comes in and, and uh, tears out the cat's ball's throat, and that's uh, it's it's a very tense moment in the, in the chapter, and it's uh, it, it also shows you know more sorrow, more bad things in store for the Starks in in 
several, at least three books or five books, if you want to count uh, Feast and Dance, where the Starks are just having all of the worst terrible things happen to them um, throughout. Yeah, you made several great points there. I think it uh, it is interesting to note that this is the last time Catelyn's ever in Winterfell, and she gets several opportunities to go back that are dashed for various reasons. She's headed on her way back, potentially, from King's Landing when she stops at the end of the crossroads and by pure chance runs into Tyrion. That leads her to the Vale. She has the chance when after she advises Robert Mo Kalin to go home to Bran and Rickon and she refuses. Yep. She says she needs to go to Edmure and Hoster because they're surrounded by her enemies. Um, their enemies, really. House Tully's enemies. She has a couple opportunities in A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords to go home. Rob kind of nudges her in that direction because he's growing tired of having to take her advice as, as boys often do with their mothers. Uh, but Catelyn refuses every time. Rob is the one she needs to be with. Her, her Tully family is in danger. Their lands are in danger. Their people are in danger, so she stays. But that's a classic, tragic thing to always come close to going back home, getting right. everything you want, and see it kind of slip through your fingers. That fits that the the, the downfall and sadness as, as themes that we're talking about. And yeah, it, it this chapter is already sad and hard to read your first time through, but coming back after the Red Wedding for a variety of reasons, some of which we'll get into later in the episode, mm-hmm. it's, it's emotionally devastating. Like when you realize yeah. that this is just the start, that this is Catelyn, <laughs> that Catelyn is happier than she's going to be for the rest of the books. Like that is, that's when you realize like just the layers of tragedy, like pressing Martin, pressing the thumb, as you said on House Stark, that this is not just, uh, a random horrible event that happened to the family, but uh, one of many signs of doom. You know that this is linked mm-hmm. to the 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 dead direwolf with the the antler in its neck. You know that yep. this is linked to the the dark wings, dark words of John Aaron, to the dark wings, dark words of Lysa's letter, and to all, all the, the the rumors Catelyn will hear in King's Landing. That you know this this is her life now. This is not just something she can snap out of. It's something she recovers from within the course of the chapter to the point where she can function again. But the the grief and doubt and despair that are kind of gnawing away at her, those aren't going anywhere. And I think it's interesting to consider how that drives her decision-making. Catelyn uh, never gives really full reign to her emotions in a way that's not filtered through politics, if that makes sense. Even when Catelyn's being very emotional, she's always kind of... She's except for this scene, she's always generally thinking about politics. But I think yep. it is interesting to consider how her her grief and her doubt and despair are driving her actions. Like, would she trust Littlefinger as much as she does if he wasn't connected to this happier time? Like, whenever she no. thinks of flashbacks to Littlefinger, it's always we were so innocent in River Run, we were playing and giggling amidst the godswood, and we were feeding each other mud pies and playing and kissing. Like, Littlefinger is her childhood. Right, and that was before any of this, any any of these grief and doubt and despair happened to her. Maybe that's what makes Catelyn so kind of vulnerable to Littlefinger's lies, because she wants to believe that the the innocent sweet boy from childhood really is still an innocent sweet boy. Um, you know that obviously the decision she makes to let Jamie go is is heavily influenced by her loss and her desperate sense to try to get something of what she has back. Uh, and that's a great irony because, of course, Bran's not actually Bran and Rickon aren't actually dead when she makes that decision. Yes. Uh, and yeah, I think that's that's really the, the tone of this chapter. The book up to this point has been, it's been tense at certain points. It's been horrifying at certain points. Uh, it's been very ominous and kind of like everything is trembling, waiting for something to happen at other points. But this is, this is the first time it gets really sad. 
This is the first yeah. chapter where, like, you're supposed to, like, have to put the book down <laughs> and, like, finish the chapter later. And I mean that in a good way. I, yeah. Like, most people I know who go through this book for the first time, me included, have a hard time getting through this chapter. Like, it takes a while. And it's supposed to. Because Catelyn is not reacting in a, in a perfect, admirable way, in a rational way to what's happened to her. She freaks out at poor Maester Lewin. And you flinch from that, but you also got to know at some level that, you know, we all might react the same in that situation. For sure. And that's, again, it's it's that realistic depiction of what grief and sorrow look like. And that's in the in the vase of, of Catelyn Stark. It's not a comfortable chapter. It's, it's really not. Like, I, I when I reread the chapter about a week ago, the first time, um, not the first time, but I reread the chapter for, for the podcast, I do. I get that kind of creeping dread that kind of wells up in the stomach and kind of filters up and um, in, into my mind, and it just really kind of still. It, it doesn't feel good to read this chapter. It, it reads like someone is really going through a, a terrible time and is having a extremely tough go about it, and and that's realistic. To that Catelyn would not just be bounding back on her feet and being Cat the Catelyn Stark that we knew in her first two chapters and the Catelyn Stark that we know again, because this is almost like a, a rebirth for her, for her at the end of, at the end of the chapter, she begins to regain a bit of herself after she slept and she's regained some of her um, fleet of footing in terms of her, her mental acumen. Uh, she's very smart. She's making uh, incisive, smart decisions. Um, I do like in this chapter that she figures out that Jamie, uh, or that Jamie and Cersei threw Bran from the window. I, I don't like the motif from the show. I, I will praise season one because I think it's the, if not the strongest, if it's the strong season, if not the strongest season of the show, I think my favorite is season three, but I think season one is more thematically strong. Um, the scene where she discovers it because she goes up into the tower and finds like a long golden hair. And it's like, ah, this is Cersei. <laughs> <laughs> You're like CSI mm. Winterfell. Yeah, that was pretty right. Funny. Right. Exactly. You, you almost wish they had like pulled out a microscope and be like, hmm, let's compare the DNA. We have a bit of DNA from Cersei because we have her wine cup here. And then here's her hair. And I, I didn't like that motif in the show. I do like it better that Catelyn figures it out on her own because she starts to put things together in her own mind. And I think that's really good. It's also good that she's making smart decisions at the end, too, about going down to King's Landing. She knows if she goes down with a large party that she's going to draw attention and that's going to be bad for her husband. But a small party might not draw as much attention, or at least that's her hope. Unfortunately, that's a hope that doesn't bear itself out. Um, it is a mistake that Catelyn – I don't know if it's a mistake necessarily, but it, it is, it, it's something that doesn't work, it work itself out because you have Varys the Spider who is paying off people to report on the comings and goings in the port of King's Landing. And he reports that Catelyn Stark and um, uh, and Roger Cassell are both in in King's Landing and are both um, uh, attempting to seek out uh, folks who might know about the uh, the identity of the dagger and the person who might have wielded it, welted it, wielded it. But again, this it's it's a great chapter. It's almost like split in half. Like the first half is extremely uncomfortable to read, and the second half brings us to the Catelyn Stark that we come to know and love in the rest of A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings. The smart, politically incisive. Uh, intelligent woman who is using her station in life to advance the cause of House Stark and eventually the cause of House Tully as well when she gets down to the Riverlands. But I, I, I do like this this chapter again, like quite a bit. Um, again, it's really uncomfortable to read, but you know it's really realistic for what you know Catelyn has gone through, having her beloved son pushed from a window and not being sure if the child is going to live or not. And I think that's uh, 
again, reads very realistic to how a person would deal with that kind of grief. And it's rooted in her values. I mean, we see the best and worst of family duty honor in this chapter. Oh, yeah. When the, when the chapter starts, Catalan's very narrow conception of that is, I'm doing my honorable duty to my family by sitting in this chair and staring at my son's face and doing nothing else. And as Rob right. pointed out, you're not helping him. Right. If he's, he's going to die at this point, he's going to die. It's probably not. But, you know, if he's going to heal, your presence is not what's doing that. Um, which I like is kind of undercutting a potentially eye-roll-worthy mystical thing where, like, Catalan's presence did heal Bran, like, merely your mother's love being there. Like, that would be, I think, unearned and feel cheap. And there are fantasy novels that work like that, and I'm glad in this particular case, despite all the other kinds of magic surrounding Bran, that they didn't go that route. And instead, they have this very mundane thing of Rob informing her that, here's the situation, as horrible as it is, you have to snap back and be functional again. And that fits Catalan because snapping back and being functional is her whole thing. And later on in the chapter, she looks back and feels ashamed. And she says she's going to stro- show these northerners how strong a Tully of Riverrun could be. Uh, and then, yeah, her political mind is reengaged. And that's really the arc of this chapter, really more than the threat to Bran. I mean, Rob says immediately that, you know, Bran's not going to die. The threat is removed, which is ironic given that someone else tries to kill him. <laughs> But even that assassin is not presented as someone who's particularly intimidating or scary. He just repeats the same line. He smells bad. He's kind of clumsy. Like the 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 danger of this chapter, I would almost say, comes from Catelyn. Like she's the one you're you're scared of. Yes. And scared for, and you don't know what she's going to do, and it's unpredictable, and she's yelling. Like you know, that's the arc is Cat is Catelyn's inner struggle dealing with herself more than it is, I think, even dealing with the external threats. Uh, it's the, the assassination attempt is over in a heartbeat. The real kind of emotional focus is how Catelyn deals with it. I mean, it's uh, ironically a threat on her family that is restorative to her. Like right. this, what should, you know, the, the nightmare scenario of someone else coming to kill Bran, that's what snaps Catelyn back into, back from stasis and back to life. And she's kind of immediately, immediately finds a much better relationship to her sons. Like, like there's that yep. great moment you mentioned in the summary where she's asking Rob, answer your own question, Rob. Why would someone try to kill him? He's got like a Socratic teacher thing going on with Rob. Yes. Trying to get him to figure, like leading him down the path, letting him figure out just enough on his own and then coming back with what we're going to do. Like, I really love the Cattle and Rob relationship. This is something I've mentioned before. Um, and this chapter, we really get to see it in action. You, we get Rob showing this great moment of vulnerability when he tells his mom, I need you too. I'm trying, but... I can't deal with Rick on. I can't run the castle. I need your help. But we see him stepping up nonetheless. He's, he's got a sword in hand. He's giving commands. Uh, he's he's still on the border of maturity. Like he pulls that sword out and waves it around. <laughs> but uh, he's he's doing, you know, he's, he's starting to grow up. And Catelyn recognizes that and is engaging with him at that level. And that's just a much healthier relationship for her in this crisis then shutting down and, and acting like she's protecting Bran when really she's not doing anything and, and needs to, needs to get back in the saddle, so to speak. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really cool about the, uh, the end of the chapter is that, uh, Rob after Rob is, um, she notices that Rob is carrying a sword around and she thinks just, oh, wow, she's, he, my son's carrying his, his sword around. And Rob says, I, I can carry a sword around, right? That That's okay for me to do that. Right. And it's, it's, it's time for me to do that. And Catelyn decides then that she's going to resume her her role as being the the mother figure and says pastime, you know. It, it really kind of reinforces that sense of uh, of her resuming a bit of her of her old self when she rises after she slept for four days, and uh, and she comes back into um, uh, some of her 
uh, a mental acuity, as I said before. Um, one thing I want to go back to is you, you had mentioned that uh, it would have been kind of a silly thing if if Catelyn was um, if the mother's love and her her sight had brought was reviving or sustaining Bran. Um, but uh, you know, even though that's not the case, there is something that is sustaining Bran, and that is the the cries of the direwolves, which is something that Tyrion brings up in his first chapter. And that whenever the uh, when they shut the the shutters of Bran's sick room, that the um, Bran would grow weaker. But when they open it up and let the wolves howl, it would sustain him. And you have that kind of hint again here in this chapter where the dire wolves are howling and howling and howling. Um, at that point, it seems to me that they're not necessarily sustaining Bran's life, that they're signaling that danger is on the way. Um, that is something we, we brought up in past chapters as well, the, that the dire wolves have that uh, motif in in the Song of Ice and Fire of telling the Starks, hey, don't, you know, be on your guard. Something is something wrong is afoot. Um, but but here, you know, they have the same thing going on. But at the same time, the dire wolves are sustaining Bran uh, in one way or the other, sustaining his life. And um, as we're going to pick up in Bran's third chapter, um, Bran almost buys it again. Like he almost dies yet again later on. And um, I, I'd have to remember because I, I haven't read the chapter, but I know in the in the show, the uh, the scene where Bran wakes up, he's staring at the face of his direwolf Summer. Correct. I believe that's correct. Yeah, I, I, I know. I don't know if it's that scene. I think that might be a season two thing when he wakes up and he's staring. Oh, is that, is that right? Yeah, I know. I, I, remember, I know. Summer's there when he wakes up. I think the shot you're talking about, where it's just like shot reverse shot of Bran's eyes and Summer's eyes. I think yeah. that might be season two. Oh yeah, it's season it's definitely two, similar. episode one. Yeah, it's, it's season two, episode one, where he's he's working through Bran. He's he's working through right. Bran working through summer and he's watching, you know, summer run around, then he wakes up. And so discard that, but but still the, the point still remains that the direwolves are playing a part in sustaining brands, brands life and his life essence. Um, but what are the, uh, so this, this chapter is pretty intense and, and uh, in depth. What were some of the things that you liked more generally about this chapter? Well, speaking of the direwolves, I like the kind of the, the dual role they play similar to how, Catelyn's family duty honor is both the best in her and the worst in her. The direwolves are both these supernatural guardian figures. They're protectors. They're they're champions of light and life, to borrow from Melisandre, in that they are sustaining Bran, keeping him going, keeping him struggling for life. Warning the Starks or attempting to warn the Starks about the attempt on his life. But on the other hand, they are also predators and they are also... Animals whose you know defense of their Starklings is, is really bloody and bone crunching, and Martin doesn't shy away from that or pretend it's not happening. I mean, it's uh, you know the the scene in which the summer attacks. Well, the unnamed wolf at this point is not summer yet, which Brand's <laughs> unnamed wolf attacks the assailant is. You know, you're supposed to flinch. It's 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 bloody and visceral and you know very vivid, uh, and it's you know while Brand's life is being saved. Uh, there's a there's a definite i mean there's there's an irony when Catelyn says thank you to summer given right. that summer has has saved their lives but she's covered i mean that's i think part of why Catelyn starts to laugh hysterically because she recognizes that she's you know thanking a wild animal for killing someone that's right. what it feels like to her is that he just did her a great debt but if you objectively break down what just happened a wild animal just killed somebody and in the same way that Danny's dragons are both glorious and terrifying the mm-hmm. direwolves are, are supposed to warm our hearts and, and when they uh, have those, their protections and their bond with their Starklings. But, like, there's a reason that 
everyone is afraid of Nymeria in the Riverlands. There's a reason yes. that everyone in the Westerlands is afraid of Grey Wind. There's a reason even that everyone, not everyone at the Wall, but there's a reason some people at the Wall are afraid of ghosts. I mean, yes. these are, they're monsters to a certain extent. They're, oh, yeah. to borrow from uh, Dance with Dragons, Cold Hands', dis- Cold Hands description of Let Raven, your monster, Brandon Stark. Yes. If they're on your side, they're here to protect you, but they're not benevolent forces. They're not angels. They're not uh, easy on the reader, necessarily. We're supposed to thrill in them, but we're also supposed to be afraid of them. So that's something I really like about the chapter. Is it, it gets at both sides of that really well, I think. No, for sure. I think that the comparison between the dragons and the direwolves is extremely apt and is uh, intentional on Martin's part. And I do like that point that you bring up about the um, they're they're your allies, but they're also very dangerous allies too. I mean, you have that whole thing in Arya's Dance with Dragons chapters where she's warging Nymeria and she watches as Nymeria kills an innocent farmer, seemingly. And um, at the same time, you have Summer or the unnamed direwolf, as as we're going with right here, uh, saving Bran's life by killing the uh, the cat's ball. So it's 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 a bit of um, it's a bit of a balancing act for sure. Um, in 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 Martin's writing here, as he wants to in, he wants to get across in uh, in the, in a song of ice and fire, the direwolves are both dangerous and friend at the same time, and they can be kind of both at the, at the same time as well. Yeah, you see that with Shaggy Dog uh, when it get going all feral in both the, at the end of this book and on Clash of Kings, and it. it it's all tying into the, the human heart and conflict with itself to borrow from, you know, Martin's mm-hmm. favorite theme because <laughs> they were, they reflect their starklings and the starklings, although we love them and they're kids and we want them to be safe. They're not flawless, perfect angels either. So when Rickon gets really, really angry, at what's happening in his life, Shaggy dog gets really, really angry. And when Arya gets alienated from the world around her, Nymeria kills innocent farmers, you know, right. and it's uh, even Bran has shades of darkness in him, as we'll get into later with mm-hmm. him working into Hodor. And he only started working into Hodor because he was so used to working into summer. So, you know, the, the, the dire wolves are the Starks and the Starks are the dire wolves for good and ill. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What about you, sir? What do you like about the chapter? My, my likes are, are, are pretty, uh, unfortunately they're not super uh, impactful and in depth like yours. Um, but I, I do love Catelyn's emotional state. Uh, it is uncomfortable, like we said, but it's also extremely real. Um, I love the idea about Rob the boy and how he's waving his sword around. And this is and he has to have that tempered by um, by Roderick Cassell is like, put your put your sword away. Never pull out your sword unless you mean to use it. And, and I think that's really good. It's also signaling a change in Rob's life as well, because he is going to be taking up the sword um, for a lot of a Game of Thrones, a lot of a clash, most of all of a clash of kings and some of a storm of swords before he's killed violently. Um, it's it's good. It's also showing us a little bit of Rob, uh, a little bit Rob the boy. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. I always look at it like, um, you know, they talk about Ned's, the, the Lord's face and the father's face. Well, here we have Rob, the boy, the boy's face. And then later we get Rob, the uh, Lord, Rob with the Lord's face as he's dealing out justice and leading his men into battle. But you still see flashes of Rob the boy throughout his his arc. I mean, I always remember that scene where he's meeting up with Cleos Frey in uh, Catelyn's first chapter in A Clash of Kings. And he has the sword out and uh, against an emissary and 
Catelyn notes it and, and thinks that there's still a bit of a boy left in him as well. Uh, I, I like, again, the, the violent fight with the cat's ball. I think it's very raw. I think it's very, um, uh, you could feel the tension and you can feel the excitement and you could feel the action kind of pulsing through that chapter. And I love that line that concludes the, the fight where, uh, uh, where Summer takes out or, or rather that Summer rips out um, the cat's ball's throat and the line is his blood felt like a warm rain as it sprayed across his face. Like, man, that's effing metal, man. <laughs> that's, that's a good, that's yes. a good line. Exactly. That's very vivid. Uh, and you can feel Martin just wanting you to, ooh, to feel your stomach clench up and your yes. face clench a little bit. Uh, it's, you know, it's a great tonal mixture of relief that brands. Okay. Uh, but uh, revulsion at the, the violence of the way in which he was saved. Yes. And yeah, I, uh, I I like what you're saying about Rob. There, it's interesting. Yeah, he, him and his relationship to his sword and public performance. It comes up again when Tyrion shows up in Winterfell. Rob has the sword out when he's sitting in Ned's chair. It comes up with Cleo's fray, as you say. Obviously, it comes up with the execution of Rickard Karstark. Uh, you know, Rob has he has to like you say take on the Lord's face and take on the job of being the holding the monopoly on violence in the North and having the, right. the great public responsibility and weight of the person who, uh, you know, passes the sentence and swings the sword. And you start seeing that develop here. Uh, it happens again later in the book when Bran is attacked by Osha and the other uh, wildlings slash deserters from the watch. Yes. In the woods outside the winter town, Rob has his sword up. But yeah, man, really everyone keeps trying to kill Bran, huh? Because <laughs> we had... What's up we with had that? Jamie, we had the cat's paw, we have Blood Raven willing to kill him to test his powers and his dreams. Yep. You got Osha and the, the, the attack party. Uh, Theon is, is hunting him down and maybe willing to kill him later at some point. Everyone everyone wants the poor little Messiah dead. It's yeah, amazing he's so made it this far. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's the chosen one and the chosen one has to survive all of the trials and tribulations of, of being the chosen one and on his pathway to to being the Messiah figure of, of the story. So, um, what yes, about you? I mean, so we talked about some of our likes. What are some of the things that you might have disliked about this chapter? Something I've noticed in rereading this first book is that Theon feels kind of off. Oh, yeah. He becomes one of my favorite characters in The Clash of Kings and A Dance with Dragons. Uh, and I've, you know, reread those chapters a bunch of times and I know them really well. And I think <laughs> really? Martin does a great job of the series <laughs> on Dance with Dragons continuing coming soon to a blog near you. Um, and I think Martin does a really great job with Theon as a POV at getting across why he thinks what he thinks and especially in Clash like showing us that his thoughts are horrible while making us understand why he thinks that way I think that's yes. a difficult balance that uh, to borrow from Stephen Atwell Theon in Clash feels very much like a dry run for Jamie and Storm in terms yes. of having the, the villain protagonist quote unquote that you slowly gradually mm -hmm. come to understand and see why they do what they do uh, but here, as a non-POV, as a background character, he feels kind of stiff and out of place and just kind of ill-defined. Like when Catelyn reveals her suspicion, as you said in your summary, that it was Jamie who tossed Bran from the Broken Tower, uh, she describes all of their faces as, as shocked and horrified. And like, you know, uh, Roderick says, uh, the Kingslayer, even the Kingslayer would never do such a thing or something <laughs> like that. And, and then yes. Theon's next line of dialogue is, oh, wouldn't he? I wonder. So that suggests he's not taken aback, that he's cynical about it. But then why was his face shocked along with the rest a couple of right, ago? Right, right, right. It feels like Martin in the scene doesn't really have a handle on what Theon is doing there. Whereas I think Roderick and Maester Lewin are great supporting characters just in terms of how they work in dialogue scenes. Like we're going to see that in the next few Catalan chapters. 
it's important to have Roger there so Catelyn has someone to talk to about what's going on and what we're going to do next. And Roger Cassell is, 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 serves that role perfectly. Theon, yeah. he, he serves that role because you know Roger Cassell, this old faithful knight who's blustery but does the right <laughs> thing. And you want you know, and you know Maester Lewin is this skeptical rationalist with a kind heart who loves the Starks like his own children. Theon, you don't really get a nice sense of who he is at this point. So he just kind of feels... He feels out of place. He, Theon Greyjoy is kind of the ultimate ascended extra in terms oh, of yeah. you really don't get a sense at this point of how important he's going to be. Compare him to like Stannis, who also isn't, you know, is not in the first book at all. He's not mentioned in the pitch letter, but you get a real strong sense built up throughout this first book of what kind of character Stannis is and what the role he's going to play in the narrative is. Uh, whereas with Theon, you get a, a couple mentions of his of his dad, of Balin Greyjoy, of Greyjoy's rebellion, and Theon is there specifically to make sure it doesn't happen again, but you really don't get a sense that this guy is going to be important and you need to keep an eye on him. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. My dislike is similar to yours in that there's, there's a line that Theon says in this chapter that just kind of strikes me as really, um, really kind of weird in retro in retrospect, have no, now knowing Theon where Theon's story goes in, in clash and in dance and it's where they're they're still talking, and and Catelyn says Winterfell may have need of its sword soon, and they had best they had best not be made of wood. And then Theon comes in, my lady, if it comes to that, my house owes yours a great debt. Like what? A debt for what? Sparing Theon's life? I mean, maybe Theon's like kind of being a little naive here, but still, there's really no debt that the Greyjoys owe the Starks. I mean, I guess they owe the Starks and the Baratheons their allegiance because they were beaten enemies and things like that. But it just feels like a, a an out-of-place line, especially when you get a hold of Balon Greyjoy in Theon's point of view in Theon's point of view chapters in The Clash of Kings. You get Balon is extremely angry and uh, is willing to rebel again and to go to war and a war that he really can't win in any stretch of the imagination just because he's feeling really angry and upset that he lost his last war uh, against the the Baratheons and the Starks and all of Westeros who essentially descended on the Iron Islands during the Great Joy Rebellion. But yeah, that Theon is again that's that's something that we we talked about in um in Bran's first chapter really uh about how Theon is not well rounded as a character. I do I I love his his point of view character point of view chapters. I keep saying point of view characters. I do love his point of view chapters in Clash and Dance, and I do love what Martin does with him as a character, but it does feel like that he's that Martin is gardening Theon into a better character as he's progressing and that he is not really has he's not really thought him through all the way yet and what his psychology is deep down inside. Yeah, that line about House Greyjoy owing owing the Starks until he's a great dead, that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> like, as, as Ned will say later on when he meets Catelyn King's Landing, keep Theon close because we might need his father's longships. As, as in, you know, a threat. It's blackmail. That's not like a... a that's not the Manderleys who owe the Starks this great profound debt and feel bonds of affection and respect and are going to honor that. That's not what's going on with the Greyjoys. Right. They're, they're former enemies and bitter enemies. And no one, no one pretends that the Greyjoys... No one else... Besides Theon, in this moment, pretend that the Greyjoys are friends with the Starks and the Tullys. And that's weird because, yeah, Theon lies to himself a lot and is naive about some things, but he's not naive about that. Right. Like, when he he's very much aware of, like, when we get to his Clash of Kings POV chapters, of that gap in that he's there to be killed if his dad tries anything. He's got that great line at the end of his Clash of Kings arc where he tells Sir Roderick that, you know, the noose around my neck was not made of hemp and rope, but it chafed me raw all the same. Yeah. Uh, 
so Theon, the character we come to know, is is aware of these things. He's naive about like himself and his own masculine strut and how awesome he's going to be and how he's going to be the <laughs> prince. Like that's what Theon's naive about. But he's not naive in this way. So it does feel out of character and stiff coming back to it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And and that's you know, the one one of the great things about Martin's style is is as we sit, as we've said in the past that each book is better than the last book and he's constantly improving on on his prose and on his um, getting into the thematics and the psychology of his characters. And that bears itself here out here, definitely in, in the form of Theon where, where Theon gets a whole lot more um, depth and a whole lot more thematic grounding in his clash of Kings arc for sure. And even later in the game of Thrones really is he's, he's, you know, being set up late in the game of Thrones as being one of Rob's close friends and things like that. Um, but again, you know, like we said in that brand chapter, Theon is set up to be like Rob's closest friend, but it's the, their friendship is never really shown. It's just kind of being like, oh, they're they're friends. They're they're the closest of friends, but they don't really seemingly have that close of a friendship in any of their interactions until we get to the end of a Game of Thrones and Theon is pledging his sword to to Rob Stark's side. Um, but yeah, again, Theon is not necessarily the best written character in a Game of Thrones. He is though kind of a minor character. Relatively speaking, and he does emerge onto center stage come a clash of kings. So, in talking about Martin's gardening style and the the kind of emotional layers of his work and what it means to come back to this first book after endlessly rereading the later books, something that really stands out about this chapter coming back is that this is the chapter where the seeds of Lady Stoneheart are really sown. You know, mm -hmm. fitting the theme of how Starks fall and rise and Catelyn's kind of vengeful anger about it all. This is where you can see that she's going to become this this figure of, of uh, grief and vengeance for all that she and her family uh, have lost. Uh, you know, the, as the chapter opens, as you said, you know, we got this, Catelyn has this impotent fury when Maester Lewin tries to go over the books with her. My son lies here broken and dying, Lewin, and you wish to discuss a new master of horse? Do you think I care what happens in the stables? Do you think it matters to me one whit? I would gladly butcher every horse in Winterfell with my own hands if it opened Bran's eyes. Do you understand that? Do you? <laughs> the idea of Catelyn gladly butchering every horse in Winterfell with my own hands in the name of her fallen son lays the groundwork for Lady Stoneheart's forest of nooses in the Riverlands, sprouting from the blood-soaked soil of the Red Wedding. It's an image that smacks of both the Godfather, the horse's head in the bed, mm -hmm. and blood sacrifice. Given the resonance with Danny butchering Drogo's horse in her attempt to revive him later in the book, I think you could argue that this qualifies as a hint that Catelyn's rage will ultimately be filtered through sorcerous resurrection. Yep. And then... Later on in the chapter, as her breakdown starts to reach that fever pitch that you were talking about, there's the quote, Catelyn was shaking. It was the grief, the cold, the howling of the direwolves. Night after night, the howling and the cold wind and the gray empty castle, on and on they went, never changing, and her boy lying there broken. The sweetest of her children, the gentlest. Bran, who loved to laugh and climb and dreamt of knighthood, all gone now. She would never hear him laugh again. And there's that line you mentioned about her just screaming, make them stop, make them stop, kill them all if you must, just make them stop. Oh, yeah. And the language here is, is very reminiscent of the kind of fragmented thoughts that will flash across Catelyn's mind in her final moments before the knife finds her neck. It's that same sense that she's being torn to pieces by loss and grief and the death of her son's innocent dreams. There's even the mournful howl of the wolves in common with the Red Wedding. You had Grey Wind howling desperately while Rob was being killed. And here you have the, the direwolves howling, howling desperately as Bran is almost killed. Yeah. Uh, but here, of course, uh, Catelyn is calling for their death. She's calling for the death of these wolves, the supernatural guardians sent to her kids that, you know, save her life immediately after she calls for their death. 
And the uh, Stoneheart, similarly, her rage flares out heedlessly. However justified it is in terms of what the phrase did to her and Rob, she she ends up hanging innocent. She ends up, uh, you know, putting a noose around Podrick Payne's neck, of all people, the, our, our, our precious son, the one true squire. Right. Uh, s- similar to how she kind of, even her, her justified anger about Jon Snow being at Winterfell led her to uh, treat him so horribly. Uh, her, her justified anger about the Red Wedding of Stoneheart will lead her to turn on innocence once more. Mm-hmm. And then as the, as the fire breaks out, we get the, you know, Rob did not seem to hear her. The library tower's on fire, he said. Catelyn could see the flickering reddish light through the open window now. She sagged with relief. Bran was safe. The library was across the bailey. There was no way the fire would reach them here. Thank the gods, she whispered. Rob looked at her as if she'd gone mad. So it's, it's <laughs> a almost yeah, situational humor where Catelyn is so focused on Bran that she interprets a fire. She goes, thank the gods to a fire just because it doesn't threaten Bran. And, you know, you can't fault Catelyn for prioritizing her vulnerable child above everything else. But the way she's framed here is having the blinders on to all else in a really kind of a dysfunctional way. And that, of course, gets turned up to 11 after Beric brings her back from the dead. You know, not for nothing does Martin have that line about Rob looking at her as if she's gone mad, which, of course, she will watching him die. I mean, the... This kind of obsessive fixation on your children's life to the detriment of everything else feels very much to me like Cersei during the Blackwater. Not quite as obviously bad or malicious as Cersei during the Blackwater, but that same sense of like final vision and not giving credence to the big picture. And, you know, Cersei herself uh, uh, will order a dire wolf killed later on in this book. And then then when the cat's paw arrives, uh, we really start getting the early glimpses of the Red Wedding. Uh, uh, there's the quote, no, Catelyn said louder now as she found her voice again. No, you can't. She spun back toward the window to scream for help, but the man moved faster than she would have believed. One hand clamped down over her mouth and yanked back her head. The other brought the dagger up to her windpipe. <laughs> the stench of him was overwhelming. So just at the twins, two books later, Catelyn has a dagger at her throat, forced to witness an attempt on her beloved son's life. In this yeah. instance, of course, the, the wolf is there to save the day as he won't be at the Red Wedding, uh, but the imagery is still very strongly reminiscent. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's the language is so similar. I I feel very strongly that George, when he was crafting the Red Wedding, which again was the last thing that he wrote for A Storm of Swords, that he was consulting heavily with this Catelyn chapter from A Game of Thrones. So I'll, I'll go over a few of the similar languages and the similar imagery that George uses in A Game of Thrones, and then I'll compare it with the Red Wedding stuff from A Storm of Swords. So in A Game of Thrones... Um, it's the cat's paw, uh, it comes into, into Bran's room and it says, quote, one hand clamped down over her mouth and yanked back her head. The other brought the dagger up to her windpipe. And then a storm of swords. It is Catelyn who is now holding the knife and she's holding the knife up to Jingle Bell's throat. That is Aegon Frey's throat. And it says, quote, she pressed the blade deeper into Jingle Bell's throat. And then at the very end of her arc, again, it's, it, it's, it's, even as I'm, as I'm reading it, it still like punches me in the gut. Um, mm-hmm. in, in the last paragraph in Catelyn's arc, it says, quote, make an end. And a hand grabbed her scalp just as she'd done with Jingle Bell. And she thought, no, don't. Don't cut my hair. Ned loves my hair. Then the steel was at her throat and its bite was red and cold. Um, that is the last lines from Catelyn, any of Catelyn's point of view chapters. Um, it's very similar, again, in wording to what happens in A Game of Thrones. Um, and then uh one more thing, uh, actually a couple more things. Um, the uh, 
there's a comparison here from a Game of Thrones where Emmett had read that the stench of him, that is the cat's bow, was overwhelming. And then in A Storm of Swords, as Catelyn grabs Aegon Frey's throat, uh, the men- mentally handicapped boy soils himself and it says, quote, the lackwit rolled his eyes in- at her in mute appeal. A foul stench assailed her nose. Just brutal, man. Like, it's just sometimes it, like it's still like just kind of. Oh, yeah. It still makes my heart skip, skip and yeah. stop. And then uh, finally, um, you have the comparison in laughter. So uh, after Summer rips out the Caspal's throat and she thanks the direwolf, she falls to the floor and uh, she looks and she sees that the direwolf jumps up onto Bran's bed and it says, quote, Catelyn began to laugh hysterically. And then in A Storm of Swords, as in her penultimate chapter or her rather her penultimate paragraph, it's, quote, slow red worms crawled along her arms and on her clothes. It tickles that made her laugh until she screamed. Um, You get that real sense that Martin was looking back at this chapter from A Game of Thrones as he's crafting the Red Wedding and wants us to draw that line from A Game of Thrones to A Storm of Swords. And this is the type of character that Catelyn becomes um, thereafter, where she is consumed with this idea of vengeance and this idea of achieving violence against those who perpetrated the Red Wedding. And as much as it feels and is, uh, to some extent, justified, you have innocence caught up in the in the slaughter as well. Folks like Brienne, Podrick Payne, Sir Hyle Hunt, who's not a great guy by any stretch of the imagination, but definitely doesn't deserve to be hanged as well. Um, but, but yeah, so I, my, my question is, do you think that um, – that Martin knew at this juncture when he's writing a Game of Thrones that Catelyn would become Lady Stoneheart at the end of A Storm of Swords? It's a good question. I think you can definitely make the case that the Red Wedding itself was in mind just from the imagery and the way he writes the scene. As we said, the blood on her hands, the horror bubbling out of her as hysterical laughter, even the guards watching in shock the same way the Frey guards do right before they kill her at the end of the Red Wedding. Uh, It feels like... Martin had that in mind. Again, given some of the stuff I was talking about earlier in the episode with Catelyn Stark's story as this kind of downfall, this tragic d- descent with each step along the way, and how it's, you know, she starts out in a uh, place of relative grace, relatively happy with her life, and then the woman of her time and un- woman of, of her time and place comes unstuck from space and time, and all she can do is the blood pools is laugh at the joke that was her life, that kind of broken man and the woman breaks, so to speak. Tongue is very much present in this scene as it is in the Red Wedding, so that makes me think he had that scene pretty well planned out in his head. Yeah. Whether he had Stoneheart in his head at this point is a little harder to say. Uh, Part of me says yes just because of the way he writes her character in this chapter, and it's not just the violence, but her anger, and the way her grief kind of takes that that form of of fury at the world around her makes me think he might have been leading away from her planned fate in the pitch litter, because obviously that was a dying beyond the wall in Mance Raider's camp. That was the original plan for Catelyn's fate in Martin's pitch litter for the series. I think at this point he might've gotten already far away from that enough that Stoneheart was in the works. On the other hand, uh, R'hllor and the resurrection that goes with uh, his fire is, is not been brought up in, in this first book uh, may have really only been developed as a major plot point while writing at Clash of Kings. And that's pretty key to Stoneheart. So I, I guess it's a question of whether or when those elements were in the works, because I think once once R'hllor uh, enters the game, then I think Stoneheart is in the works as well. Yeah. What do you, you know, think, it, sir? Well, it, it brings up a, a memory about the, the pitch letter again, where the fate of Catelyn Stark was not to die at the Twins at the Red Wedding, but was rather to go north of the Wall and die at the hands of the others. And 
to me, it reads like, I guess it reads, so in the prologue from, from A Game of Thrones, we find out that the others can raise the dead. So Waymar Royce is raised from the dead in that chapter. I feel somewhat strongly that Martin had originally intended to have Catelyn be raised from the dead in similar fashion as Waymar Royce and the others, the others, the other folks that we have um, who are raised from the dead, uh, Jafer Flowers and Oth- Author, is that his name? Otho or Author? I can't remember. The, the other Night's Watchman from, from uh, one of John's later chapters who are all raised from the dead. And I think we would have seen Catelyn Stark again, but as a white in, at, at, in this, in this uh, case. And I think he ended up writing a better uh, story of her as Stoneheart. I do have some concerns about Stoneheart as a character, and that's something we can talk about as we get into a as, into a Storm of Swords, or rather the end of a Storm of Swords, when we talk about her as, in the, as an epilogue character. Um, but I do think that she was intended to return from the dead, always intended to return from the dead. I don't necessarily believe that she was in, envisioned at this juncture as being Stoneheart. I think that's an idea that came into Martin's mind as he was writing probably A Clash of Kings, um, because we do get some very definite Stoneheart foreshadowing in Catelyn's later chapters in Clash when she's back at River Run and she learns that uh, Bran and Rickon, that Bran and Rickon are quote unquote dead. Um, but I, 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 it's one of those things I would love to ask Martin, like well, after the series is finished, like, Hey, where did you come up with, when did you come on to this idea of, of Catelyn as Stoneheart? Was that always in the works from the beginning? Um, or was it something that came in your gardening style that it was sort of, Grew that is the tale grew in the telling, and you became uh, not obsessed, but intrigued by this idea of Catelyn returning as an agent of vengeance in the story, and um, kind of subverting our desire and need for for vengeance against the Freys and the Boltons in the story. I think that's that's something I would I would love to ask Martin at some point juncture down the road when he finishes a Dream of Spring, which of course will be in twenty eighteen, if I'm not mistaken. Any day now, I believe, is the the release date. But yeah, I agree. That's that's a great point of Catelyn may have intended originally to be resurrected at the hands of the others instead of uh, a priest of Relor or a, a warrior of Relor in Beric's case. Uh, I think that's probably true. The only, I was thinking, the only real hint of Relor coming to the Riverlands in A Game of Thrones is that Beric and Thoros have been sent to the Riverlands by the end right. of the book and are like attacking Tywin's uh, fort. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And such, if I recall. So yeah, you're right. Again, that's. That's uh, no indication that he had Stoneheart in mind, but he may have already had uh, a, a lore presence in the Riverlands as something he was going to bring out at a later date. And that may have led him to decide to combine the two when he was uh, thinking about how to rewrite Catelyn. He's like, well, I do still want to bring her back. What's my vessel for doing so? Oh, I do have this red priest in the Riverlands with Beric. I know I'm probably going to be bringing him back a bunch. Maybe I can tie these two plots together. And that's, that's what they went with. Um, but either way, yeah, I, I agree that... Uh, it's hard to talk about the importance of Stoneheart, given that it's mostly set up. She hasn't really been unleashed in full, not until the Winds of Winter will that really happen. But yep. I think if you look at a chapter like this and the emotions and images raised, I think you can say that the, the transformation of Catelyn into a revenge zombie at the end of Storm of Swords is not an out-of-left-field cheap trick. I no. think it's, it's sometimes argued that it is, but I think it's a, a very natural extension of the ideas and images the author's been pursuing with her character all along. That's been back in the discourse of late, of late since it uh, came out, not in the uh, recent interview necessarily, but it just uh, re- rediscovered that, you know, George R. R. Martin is continually unhappy with the fact that Game of Thrones has not featured his hangwoman. Uh, <laughs> you know, Lady Stoneheart is one of the most significant excisions from the show, in his opinion. Um, 
And, you know, we'll really have to see the Winds of Winter, of course, to get a sense of what he's talking about and why Stoneheart needs to be there. Obviously, the show did a version of what many people think will be Stoneheart's Revenge Crusade with Arya in terms of killing all the Freys at the Twins. So she might have just been given that role. But uh, I think, again, looking at this chapter, there's something about Stoneheart's Crusade that's so specific to Catelyn's character. Yes. Not just Revenge for the Red Wedding, not just anti-Frey, but uh, drawing on the earlier kind of seeds planted in her character and, and bringing them to the surface. And so that, for me, is what keeps Stoneheart interesting for right right now, even though she hasn't really done much of anything yet. I mean, she's hanged a bunch of frays, including some significant ones, but she, right. the, the red has, has, has yet to run, so to speak. That's very true. And um, at the same juncture, I, I am curious what Stoneheart will do in The Winds of Winter. I, I don't think it's simply going to be a Red Wedding 2.0. I don't think that'll be the full extent of her arc in the story. I am curious whether the Brother Without Banner is going north uh, and north of the wall is something that we will see in some guys come winds or perhaps a dream of spring. Um, that would be an interesting uh, thing to have there. Uh, it's something that the show could have explored a, a bit more, in, in my opinion, is you have undead Barrack coming up against undead whites in, in the show. Something that might have warranted a mention or a, hey, you know, how does, what are these people thinking or what, do you have any relationship to them or anything like that? Um, or do what are they feeling or thinking or, or anything like that? So I, I am very curious about Stoneheart's role and how significant it is. And Martin has, it, Martin has said this like many, many times, like as far back as like 2015, when I, I think they finally, he was finally told that Stoneheart was not going to be in the show that he's was saying, well, it's a pretty significant omission. You know, I really wish they had they had gone another route. Of course, he has said that that the show is the show, and the books are the books, and said some things like that that they're telling a bit of the same story, but there's going to be divergences along the way. But I really do. Um, I, I am curious about why Martin is as focused on Stoneheart as being like the one thing that is like so, like the biggest omission in the story. Like if it was me, I would be like, well. Why did you kill Stannis like at the end of season five? He's got so much left to do in the books, right? And the fact that Martin has not said that kind of makes me a little bit troubled deep down inside. And of course, we had to get our Stannis reference in there in this episode. So, you know, ding. Clap for that's right. We need, we, need, we need like a ding button. Maybe I'll, I'll try and research need, that. Like a Stannis chime, the sound of someone grinding his teeth. <laughs> um, I agree. I mean, it's it's. You know, I, they, I'm sure, sure their justification for getting rid of Stannis as quickly as they did was, you know, that they wanted kind of John to take over that northern storyline, which, you know, you can you can take or leave as an argument. But I'm curious as to how that relates to Stoneheart, given that, again, that Arya seems to have taken over at least the outlines of that storyline in, in the Riverlands. Yep. So, yeah, we'll have we'll have to see what exactly Martin has in mind for Stoneheart. But uh, but it's it's whatever it is, it's going to be even more fun to come back to this chapter after that occurs. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, Stoneheart is a great character, and uh, we will see her in significant depth in The Winds of Winter, according to George R. R. Martin. Uh, in a somewhat recent interview in October 2017, he had said that she is a major character and will have a major impact on the plot of The Winds of Winter. And uh, we will have to see the full extent of, of that and how it unfolds itself. Um, but speaking of The Winds of Winter, um, one of the 
things uh, that we wanted to kind of talk about in this kind of theory section of this podcast is to talk about the library and the burning of the library, which is something that occurs um, just before the cast ball shows up in Bran's sick room. Now, some of you guys might be hoping that we'll talk about um, the bad theory that is out there that the cat's ball was sent by Littlefinger. No, Mance Raider. No, someone else. But we're going to save that discussion for some of the Storm of Swords chapters, uh, some of either Jamie or, or Tyrion's chapter where that is discussed at some length. Um, and we figured we would talk about something that might be a little bit more um, – Something a little more niche because that, that that discussion has been kind of talked about at significant length as, as in on all the forums that I've I've been reading. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about how the burning of the Winterfell Library works as foreshadowing for the burning of other libraries in A Song of Ice and Fire. So in A Song of Ice and Fire, there are several major libraries featured. You have the King's Landing Library. You've got the Old Town Library that is in the Citadel that is the, that hosts many fine and old books and scrolls, some of which are the only ones in existence. You also have a, a Volantis Library as well. And these libraries are all in significant danger uh, in the Winds of Winter. One of the things that Emmett and I talked about before we came on air was that you don't put up a great wall unless you plan to knock it down. And you don't have a great library in the books unless you plan to burn it. And the reason why you would burn it is because that is going back to the great library of Alexandria, which was allegedly, it's not entirely historically um, sound, what, or it's not entirely historically known what happened to it. But in, it's popular thought that the, li the great library of Alexandria was burned at some point, either by Julius Caesar, by some of the um, Arab uh, invaders who came to Egypt in the 7th century. By other people as well. Crusaders have been ventured as well as another guests and other things like that. It's like you say, it's historically rooted in the burning of Alexandria. I think that's that's a, a culturally potent image that a lot of authors in genre fiction draw from. It's specifically resonant in fantasy because uh, you have the common theme in the genre wherein the the rational, skeptical, educated institutions, you know, libraries and schools and uh, things like the Citadel and the world of A Song of Ice and Fire, <laughs> uh, for all their various uh, strengths and weaknesses are, are wrong about the metaphysical state of the world, wrong about the end of the world, wrong about magic being dead, which is what they always think, and this being fantasy, <laughs> they're always wrong, and magic is always back. Um, and part of how that often manifests itself in the series is you have the destruction of the the lodestones of, of the skeptics and the rationalists, including libraries. Yes. And I think that's, that's something you see in A Song of Ice and Fire. You even have that line in this chapter where, uh, let me look at the exact quote here. Uh, when Catelyn's watching the library burn, she watched the smoke rise into the sky and thought sadly of all the books the Starks had gathered over the centuries. <laughs> you know, this, the sense of a great intellectual worth being, being lost, but also the sense that it wasn't, uh, wasn't doing what was needed against the against the magic against the apocalypse. I think you see that later on Song by Some Fire with the Citadel, where they have these vast intellectual resources, but the Archmaesters are burying their head in the sands. Uh, you have the even the library at Castle Black, which is, is has yeah. many more books than the ones of, than the one at Winterfell. Oh yeah, I forgot about that one. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's a treasure trove for Sam to a certain extent, as he's he tells John early on in the Clash of Kings. But it's also, I was just reading, rereading John's first chapter in A Clash of Kings the other day, and uh, Sam is surprised by the library. Like, he didn't even know it was there and that they <laughs> had all these books available. So these intellectual resources are not being husbanded and used properly. 
And so, not that that makes it good or acceptable for them to burn, but it's almost uh, like a comeuppance for the, for that skeptical, rationalist, educated side of things. That they're they've they're kind of navel gazing and shiftless and <laughs> not doing the not doing the work of the greater good. And so they deserve a they deserve a fire. They deserve a Euron Greyjoy. This is kind of this is kind of their comeuppance. Uh, yes. I think you can definitely I think you definitely seeing that uh, starting to expand once you get to like the Citadel or to the Library in Volantis, even perhaps. Oh yeah. To later books. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, we to talk a little bit about the uh, a little bit more about the Winterfell Library um, because I, I do think it it's intended to foreshadow the burnings of of future libraries down the road. We uh, we first encountered it in, in Tyrion's first chapter in A Game of Thrones. And he has that line, we talked about it in depth in Tyrion 1, about, quote, see that you return the books to the shelves. Be gentle with the Valyrian scrolls. The parchment is very dry. <laughs> Obvious mm-hmm. foreshadowing. <laughs> Our Armidon's engines of war is quite rare, and yours is the only complete copy I've ever seen, unquote. That is uh, really um, uh, sad when the library burns, because you have to assume that potentially engines of war burned uh, along with with the fire in Winterfell itself. Uh, although there were certain scrolls and books that were recovered, that, that's that Bran later talks about in A Clash of Kings. Um, not all of it was was uh, was was recovered. And yeah, you know, you, you Emmett, you brought up that line about sadly all the books the Starks had gathered over the, cent- over the centuries had burned. Um, yeah, that's really kind of sad when you when you have a library burning to the ground. And I do think that's an interesting point about um, libraries burning as um, symbolic of of magic overcoming the rational, realistic beliefs of the maesters and of the learned folk and the learned set in these fantasy novels. Um, but also, you know, you too, you talked about the, the the Castle Black Library. You know, when the wall falls in at the end of the Winds of Winter, whenever it's going to do it in the books, the the library itself is likely going to fall too. Uh, it's not just that the Winterfell Library burns, the Old Town Library burns, the Valentine Library will probably burn, King's Landing will burn, all these other different places are all going to burn, and the books are all going to be lost forever. You also have the others that will be subsuming the knowledge that has been gathered over the eons by the Night's Watch. And, you know, uh, you you had brought up the point where Sam is going through the library books, but he also does it again in A Feast for Crows. And he's finding books that are so old that he picks them up and the pages are falling to pieces as soon as he touches them. Um, it, it's it's a, a lot of information and knowledge that has been neglected by the people at Castle Black and potentially by the people at Old Town. So um, let's talk a little bit about the Old Town Library. Um, I'll throw a couple of quotes about why the Old Town Library is so important, but and then I'm going to th- throw it over to Emmett because he is the Old Town expert of this podcast. I'm a mere novice when it comes to all things Old Town and all things Citadel. Ah, uh, hush. <laughs> well, I can't. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> So uh, in the Feast for Crows pro- prologue, it's uh, you have things about the old Valyrian scrolls are being in the are down in the locked vaults of the uh, the Citadel Library, and you have Marwyn the Mage who has returns from his various travels across the world, and he brings all of these lost books and scrolls back with him to um, to Old Town. And, uh, you know, you have in Also in a Feast for Crows, you have Asher Greyjoy talking with her uncle, uh, Lord Roderick Harlaw, and he is uh, reading a book and he is reading a book that Marwyn had brought back 
uh, and talking about the uh, – uh, rather, a book that Marvin had published called The Book of Lost Books, where he's talking about the different books that he's found. And he, finally, in A Dance with Dragons, you have two where Tyrion cites that a very famous book that might be very potentially um, uh, pregnant with the possibility come the Samwell, Jack and Hagar uh, arc in The Winds of Winter uh, which is the the death of the dragons, and that the only surviving copy of that book is supposedly hidden away in the vault locked beneath the citadel. So, what is going to happen to the old town library, Emmett? I, I'm really curious about this this point in the Winds of Winter about what Martin has in store for all of these multitudes of scrolls and old books, and how there's a certain many-eyed character who is looking, or one-eyed character, two-eyed, well, really one smiling eye, one <laughs> eye bright with malice underneath of a patch that might have something to do with that library. Absolutely. You're on Greyjoy is coming. This is the impression you get strongly from Sam's final chapter in A Feast for Crows, the final chapter as a whole in Feast for Crows. Uh, as he goes into Old Town, the Ironborn invasion of the city has begun, and it's kind of even said explicitly by the, the local guards that these are no mere reavers, that they're attacking the city not just to raid and pillage as they've done under previous Iron Kings, but that Euron appears to have something else in mind and something he's coming to the city for. Uh, that is dovetails perfectly with the faithless man arriving in the city uh, to get the skeleton key to get under the citadel. It fits with the high towers, uh, Lord Leighton and the Mad Maid Melora ruling from the clouds and reportedly researching magic in old books up there. Again, that, that hint of, of the connection of the old books to magic. Uh, there's the sense in Old Town that I think this, the Citadel's uh, skeptical, rationalist worldview is starting to break. You can see that strongly in the Feast for Crows prologue when people are talking about dragons and questioning the, the uh, conventional wisdom of the Archmaesters, and that Euron is kind of the ultimate, the, the, the culmination of that process when this very sorcerous character. Uh, who's uh, an enemy of Roderick the Reader, no less, so they're kind of being set up as an, as an oppositional force, uh, strolls into Old, Old Town and starts burning everything down. I think that uh, it'll, it'll be this kind of uh, comeuppance for the maesters who didn't husband their resources well, as I said, but also a, a kick in the pants for Samuel Tarly to do better than them and hopefully recover some of the knowledge there and use <laughs> it against Euron. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think you see these strong connections between... Uh, libraries and information about magic so losing the library it's not even that you're losing the secular world it's that you're losing your ability to control the magical world like danny's ability to control her dragons is extremely limited because she hasn't read the things Tyrion has read uh you know that sam has found vital information uh, in, in in the scrolls that might have otherwise gone undetected and people wouldn't know about how to fight the others i think old town probably have some more vital information in that regard old town is probably shielding the book about how to kill dragons so you know, lose, losing that information, uh, you know, as, as is often the case in both the real world and in fantasy, uh, it, it sends you back to the Dark Ages. It loses your ability to understand the world around you. And I think that that'll mark a huge setback for the overall project of the Maesters of the Citadel, which, as Marwan tells us, is to create a world without magic. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. I'm uh, I'm curious... I'm curious what books are going to survive. You would imagine that Sam is going to attempt to secure the books that have the most to do with how to confront the others, right? But that's not the only books that are in there. Tyrion cites the book The Death of the Dragons, which the only surviving copy is in the um, uh, is is in the, allegedly in the vaults of of the Citadel. Um, 
I, I don't I, I've, I've, I like the theory a lot that Jack and Hagar's um, interest in that book in particular is it, it rather that Jack and Hagar is interested in that book particularly. And, you know, something that I read recently is that Martin has said that someone asked Martin if the Faceless Men have a contract to kill Daenerys Targaryen. And Martin has said, not yet. Um, that might be something that will have some ramifications down the road. Um, uh, I can imagine that Jack and Agar and the Faceless Men may have a purpose in trying to take that book and figuring out a way to stop a potential apocalypse of millions of people dying at the hands of Daenerys and her dragon fire, for sure. It would certainly fit with the history of the Faceless Men and what they did in Valyria. And of course, the reason we know about what the Faceless Men did in Valyria is the kindly man uh, told a story to Arya and he you know, using the uh, classic oral communication and oral tradition and storytelling. And something I think is interesting to consider as we look at the burning of libraries in history and the genre and going forward in A Song of Ice and Fire is that uh, connection to oral traditions. Uh, it's the Song of Ice and Fire, after all. And there's this, you know, that uh, connection early on in the first book to old Nan stories and how those are kind of framed as presenting these, these, these truths that the maesters don't keep in mind. Also has that line that the wolves have wit that more wit than your maesters and they have they know truths that the gray men have forgotten and that that you know even if even if the libraries burn and uh you know the this these intellectual uh, build up this intellectual storehouse is taken away that the important truths about the world and the metaphor metaphysical forces that run it can be transmitted orally or even down through collective memory the night's watch still remembers at some level that they should be burning the <laughs> corpses that come back at whites right uh, even though those stories weren't written down so uh, i think that's something we're going to be seeing as we move into endgame of a song of ice and fire is how how do we tell this story uh you know to borrow from hamilton who lives who dies who tells your story <laughs> and i think that's that's going to be intimately connected with what books survive and what stories survive you know one of the things i'm uh I had said a podcast or two ago was that I almost wish that Martin would include more point of view characters in a, in the Winds of Winter or in A Dream of Spring. And one of the ones I would have loved to have seen is Roderick the Reader. We know that he is in the Reach at the time. He has been essentially forced to support Euron's efforts to invade and raid the Reach. And I would have loved to get his perspective as the Old Town Library burns because he is being set up in A Feast for Crows as this learned man who loves books. And to get him watching the greatest library in all of Westeros go up in flames would just be similar to this uh, – similar in emo an emotional punch to almost like this Catelyn chapter. Like you get a very real – and visceral sense of who Catelyn is as a person. I can imagine getting a real and visceral sense of who Roderick the Reader is, is the thing that he loves most being taken from him and being taken from the world really at large. Yeah, I think given that you have Roderick the Reader and Samuel Tarly in roughly the same theater and that they're so both so strongly connected to book learning, I would be surprised if Martin does not contrive to have them cross paths and hook up at some point. Uh, maybe even with Willis Terrell as well. He's also in the area and is said to love books. So might, cool. get a, might, get, might get a dream team going there. We can hope. That'd be cool. Yeah, to have the three of them link up and have all sorts of adventures as they're trying to flee from the apocalypse. That'd be cool. True. I mean, we have not seen Highgarden yet. Maybe Highgarden has a, a vast library that will become the, the one lasting library, the one true library, so to speak. So <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see what we get. 
We shall indeed. Um, but so the um, that's the Old Town Library. There is the Valentin Library, which I'll touch on very, very briefly because there is only actually one reference in all of A Song of Ice and Fire to the, Val- Val- to the Valentin Library. And that comes from Tyrion's fourth chapter in A Dance with Dragons. And it's, quote, what he, that is Tyrion, really wanted was the complete text of the Fires of the Freehold, Galendro's History of Valyria. No complete copy was known to Westeros. However, even the Citadel, even the Citadel lacked 27 scrolls. They must have a library in Old Valantis, surely. Uh, unquote. So um, this this library is in danger, uh, but not from a endgame villain of the story, but from a protagonist, a hero of the story, and that is Daenerys Targaryen and the uh, fire and blood that she looks to be bringing to Essos come the Winds of Winter. Um, Tyrion doesn't get the chance to go through the uh, library at old at old Volantis, unfortunately, um, but he he wants to. Uh, he may witness the old library in old Volantis um, getting itself toasted by Daenerys or her followers because it's been strongly foreshadowed in a dance with dragons that Volantis is about to be in the throes of a slave uprising as the slaves and freedmen and followers of R'hllor look to Daenerys as their savior and or messiah figure and that will um, likely conclude with some sort of burning of Volantis I've had it in my mind that um, the the black walls of Volantis are will burn and they'll turn red with dragon fire I think that's something that's going to be really um, uh, quite uh, poignant and quite uh, vivid in its description, if I, if I have to imagine. Um, and I believe that the library in Volantis will be one of the things that will burn when Daenerys comes to Volantis in, at some point in the Winds of Winter, for sure. Yeah, that's a very spooky image. I could see it happening for sure. And that fits Danny's character. Like I said, she's been very limited in terms of her knowledge about dragons and how to handle them because she wasn't raised with uh, that passed down intellectual resource within House Targaryen. She was denied that, of course, because they fled into exile. Um, so she's really just been kind of making it up as she goes, and that's mm-hmm. connected to a lot of dangers in Danny's storyline. Uh, as we've talked about before, she uh, she has refused to learn the hard truths about her father from Sir Barristan when she had the chance. Uh, so it would, I think, fit Danny's character to inadvertently or in the process of destroying her enemies. Uh, destroy this valuable resource of knowledge. I think that that fits the line she's walking as a character where she's wielding great power on behalf of uh, potentially great great good, but she's not necessarily shaping her power in the way she needs to to accomplish that great good. Right, right. Yeah. Um, it's going to be uh, definitely interesting to see. Uh, I, I am curious whether that is going to be brought up again about the library being in Volantis, but it is something that um, when we read The Winds of Winter in a few days from now, we will have to, uh, to <laughs> see if there's any references to that library in, in, in Volantis. But, uh, but yeah, Emmett brings up great points about the burning, uh, about burning libraries and burning knowledge and how magic supersede the uh, historical and having the, uh, the learned sciences all kind of being subsumed by this magical world that is going to be enveloping and that seems to be growing in power in in, in Westeros and in Essos as well. Uh, but it is going to be a sad event in, in my opinion too. Um, you know, historically speaking, written knowledge was preserved by people who were painstakingly copying manuscripts by hand. You know, you have one of the things I'm interested in aside from a song of ice and fire is the preservation of old documents, especially some of the, uh, the old and the new testaments. 
uh, the Quran and other ancient books, a lot of them have fragments that go back thousands of years now. And, you know, in the modern world, in the past 500 years, we've been blessed by the invention of the printing press by Johannes Gutenberg in the uh, 15th century. And that really revolutionized how much written work that we have and how much we can enjoy. But in times before the printing press, books were not common. They were hard to produce. It was difficult. A lot of people didn't know how to read. Um, and there are no printing presses in Westeros or Essos as far as we know. The only way of preserving knowledge and preserving books is to hand copy them. And that's what the maesters and the septons seem to be doing uh, in the story. So when the libraries and the vaults of books go up in dragon flame in Volantis or Old Town or get subsumed by the tide of um, by the tide of the others at Castle Black, you know, that knowledge will be lost and probably lost forever. You know, dragon lore, the knowledge of the others, histories of Illyria, the age of heroes, all the stuff we find in the world of ice and fire, which is expounded upon is all kind of kind of be gone. I mean, besides the people that might know a little bit about him, but you know, in fiction, you just, you don't, like I said at the beginning, you don't have a giant wall unless you intend to knock it down and you don't have great libraries unless you intend to burn them. Yeah, we can only hope old Nan is still alive at the Dreadfort so she can tell everyone the stories <laughs> to copy him down once more. It's yeah. the only hope for Westeros. That old Nan is the one true hope. Your only hope, old Nan. Your only hope. <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, I think that just about wraps her up. I think you're right. So thank you, everyone, for listening to us. And uh, again, thank you for now... It's been, you know, probably about 35 hours of audio that you guys have listened to. And so thanks so much for listening to us for these 35 hours. And uh, yeah, we uh, look forward to your feedback and uh, and for sure on, on social media and elsewhere. Uh, as always, you can uh, rate and review us on iTunes. Listen to us on uh, SoundCloud and Podbean. Uh, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash notacastasoiif if you want to support our work there. Uh, follow us on social media. We're at NotacastASOIIF on Twitter. You can email us at NotacastASOIIF at gmail.com. Uh, personally speaking, I'm at PoorQuentin on Twitter, and you can check out my writing and ask me questions at PoorQuentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire com. Again, like we said at the very beginning, we will be on a little bit of a break for three weeks. Um, so keep listening to us. You know, re re listen to this podcast while we're while we're away. You know, we there's so much great and amazing knowledge that we're giving to you guys, and it's your opportunity to go back and re listen to our podcast. I mean, shit, you guys are rereading the books for like 10, 12, 15, 35 times. You can re listen to us one time. For sure. Think of our podcast as a library that can't be burned down. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Our iTunes library or Podbean library, whatever it is. <laughs> exactly right. But yes, uh, you know, uh, enjoy your, your couple weeks away from us before we wrap you back up in our loving embrace uh, with Jeff's favorite, Stark of them all, Sansa. It's going to be great. We're going to rake him over the coals, folks. It's going to be so good. I can't wait. <laughs> But, you know, also, too, we in that same time, if you are a patron of ours, uh, we'll be releasing our the wind. Why is the winds of winter taking so long episode at the end of May? So that same week that that 
great and lovely and wonderful Stark known as Sansa. Uh, we we talk about her. You also be getting our episode on why the Winds of Winter is taking so long and what George R. R. Martin is doing in writing the Winds of Winter. So uh, join us again in three weeks, and we will see you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Thank you very much to our patrons, our Lord's Commander, our Sir Hayden J, Sir Timothy W, Sir Mark N. Our Kingsguard, our Sir Dean W, Sir Spank My Tater, love that name, Sir Philip T, Sir Hypner, Sir J Bond, Sir Peter F, Sir Mormitz, Sir Patrick D. Our Sworn Swords are Sir Andrew B, Sir Lachlan O, Sir Chris H, Sir Dean B, Sir Milady, General Counsel to the Iron Bank, excellent, uh, Sir Andrew M, Lady Yvonne, Lady Melanie L, Sir James W, Sir Andrew B, Sir Milady Wideman, uh, Sir Colin M, Sir Stephen R, Sir Jason P, Lady Amy H, Lady Vanessa C, uh, Sir Junk Lord, Sir Adam A, Lady Rachel R, Lady Stephanie V, Sir Adam L, Sir Clint W, Sir Dan Z, Lady Fanny, Lady Catriona P, Lady Emma S, Sir Chris K, Sir Eli M, Lady June C, Lady Suki, Sir Rob R, Sir Alexane, Sir Travis M, uh, Sir Keith J, Sir Matt L, Lady Joyce S, Lady Emily A, Sir Mangu the Mage, Sir Corey H, Lady Erin, Lady Courtney S, uh, Sir Milady Gibb, uh, Sir Andres N, uh, Lady Sarah, and Sir Manu. Our poor fellows are Lady Andrea B, Sir Patrick Y, Sir Brandon S, Lady Rebecca L, Sir Roger the Night Cook, Sir Eric R, Sir Daniel R, Sir Mark M, Sir Chris, Sir My Lady Mindagas J, Sir Henry M, Sir Arlo B, Sir Michael M, Tower of John, Sir Rory C, Sir Jerry, Sir Jeremy T, Sir Patrick B, Sir Andrew B, Lady Iris F, Sir Ryan G, Sir Chase K, Sir Grayson H, Sir Chris M, Sir Mike S, Sir Louis A, Bedlam Games, Lady Esley C, Lady Lee C, Lady Kimberly J, Sir Eric C, Sir Cody L, Sir Ben T, Lady Catlin O, one thousand eyes in one, Sir Joseph P, Lady Laurel A, Lady Laura L, Sir David G, Sir Ben, Sir T J W, Red Ramira Ravenhorn of Skagos, Sir Connor M, Sumabarak M, Sir Matthew W, Sir Tim S, Lady Yvonne S, Sir Joseph G, Sir Joseph V, Sir Edward H, Sir Rene M, Sir Oscar R, Sir Chris D. Sir Rasmus B, Sir Kevin C, Sir Rogan W, Lady Jojo D, Lady Sarah L, Sir Will C, Sir Brett A, Sir Andrew M, Sir Ian L, Sir Michael G, Sir Oliver S, Lady Randy S, Lady Roxanne C, Lady Amy D, Lady Jennifer W, Sir Gregor M, Sir John Rivas, Mercedine 1, Lady Beth B, Lady Siren N, Lady Laurie, Sir Philip T, Sir Jacob H, Sir Ryan, Sir Nick S, Sir Kyle H, Sir Michael S, Sir Liam M, Sir Javi M, Sir Johanny S, Sir Patrick 84, Sir Nikolai H, Sir Jesse H, Sir Andrew Z, 
Sir Milady, A Silly 8018, Sir Alan C, Sir Milady Russian Machine Never Breaks, Sir Matija D, Sir Evan, Sir Clay S, uh, Sir Milady, KCM, Sir Steve M, Sir Fifth Horsebane, Sir Stephen B, Lady Rita Unbound, Sir Joshua M, Sir Taylor O, Sir Tom F, Sir Ewan S, Sir Andrew G, Sir Alex A, Sir Paul R, Sir Michael D, Sir Ray of Light, Sir Mark W, Sir Milady Lone Stark State, Sir Gary M, Sir Adam S, Sir Peter M, Sir Joseph S, Sir Milady MJA, Sir Jordan R, Sir Mike S, Sir Chilner, Sir Ozzie G, Sir Andrew P, Sir Lightning Lord, Sir Patrick B, Sir Mike, Sir Connor D, Lady J Bite, Lady Charlotte B, Lady Jennifer M, Sir Tim W, Sir Biffy Pagain, Sir Mary RH, Sir Nicholas M, Lady Deterra D, Sir Tom W, Sir Kyle D, Sir Matt M, Lady Catherine, Sir Raymond K, Lady Stephanie H, Sir Lion H, uh, Sir Scott R, uh, Lady Chiara M, Lady Heather R, Lady Catherine A, Sir Andrew M, Sir Chad I, Sir B-Swing, Sir Rain F, Lady Alexandra M, Sir Johan P, Sir Andrew S, Sir David K, Lady Bonnie, Sir Josh B, Sir Scott C, Lady Lucy S, Lady Sarah C, Sir Craig M, Sir Michael, Lady Allison M, Sir Robert H, Lady Evelyn S, Lady Rachel A, Sir Milady Fitter, uh, Lady Bree B, Lady Sandrixian, who I saw at Ice Firecon, Sir Derek O, Sir Cyrus M, Lady Dallas S, Lady Dallas L, Lady Erica P, Lady Ephemerata, Lady Christine H. And our sparrows, Lucifer means Lightbringer, Lady Purple K, Sir Joel D, Sir Bobby the Knight, Thrower of the Valyrian Steel Chair, Sir Alex H, Sir Maddie S, Lady Steph B, Sir Geraldo B, Sir Mark L, Sir Tom, Lady Tampasi, Sir Jerry G, Lady Francisca H, Sir Timothy U, Sir Daniel H, Sir Lucas K, Sir Robert M, Sir Simon A, Lady Loba P, Sir Jason M, Sir, my lady, Pils P, Lady Lyrae, Sir Kurt S, Lady Sarah L, Lady Sarah M, Sir Ryan N, Lady Sabrina S, Sir Stormtheus, the Bastard Storm, Sir Ryan I, Lady Laura H, Sir Thomas W, Sir, my lady, Kathy Stark, History of Westeros, Sir David B, Sir Sam B, Lady Stephanie E. Thank you all very, very much for supporting us. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, guys. And if you'd like to have a special name on our podcast, please message us on Patreon and we'll be sure to include it in our next episode. The Not A Podcast podcast is written and recorded by Port Quentin and Brendan Beefish. The music you heard is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit and the closing song is called Alaska Goodbye. Thank you all very much for listening and we will see you all in three weeks.